Very good, very good. If you want to take your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 5, please. Isaiah chapter 5. Our scripture reading for today, we're going to focus on verses 18 down to verse 20. 18 down to verse 20. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. This is what the word of the Lord says. Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Let's pray one more time together as we approach God's Word today. Father, grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And Lord, we're thankful for the prophecy of Isaiah that in Isaiah's marvelous book, we find so much for our own practical and daily instruction. No less here, Lord, as we consider the wages of sin, as we consider the woes of sin, for behind the woe of sin is the awe of the gospel. And so we pray today, Lord, make the gospel according to Isaiah clear so that we may not only see the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, and the consequences of sin, but that we may also see the beauty and the glory and the reward of eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. As Paul says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God through Jesus Christ is eternal life. And so, Father, we pray, illustrate that for us today in this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Just to give you a bird's eye view of where we're going here in our exposition of this book as we move forward, we've got one more sermon in Isaiah chapter 5. So we're going to look at one more pericope, one more paragraph, in other words, in Isaiah chapter 5. And then we come to a monumental passage in the book of Isaiah. That's chapter 6. Chapter 6 is a daunting task for any preacher to have to preach through. It's one of those... I think it's just one of those hallmarks in biblical revelation where you come to it at last, so to speak. This is the Romans 9 of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. But we're not going to go from chapter 5 directly uh, to uh, chapter 6, and therefore I am going to kind of leave you hanging a little bit. So what we're going to do, Lord willing, is uh, when we finish chapter 5, I'm going to take a little break from just our verse-by-verse exposition of Isaiah, and we're going to uh, take a look at the doctrine of the church and the burden of mine. And so I got permission from Pastor Lynn to go ahead and deviate from our verse 
verse-by-verse exposition and go to a little bit of a topical uh, subject dealing with ecclesiology because I, I think it's so necessary for our church. I think it's so necessary for us just to get our footing. You know, it's been a while since I've been on a text, a passage, since I've been on a chapter or a context that deals specifically with the doctrine of the church. And so I want to just take a break and, and uh, use this at, as a time to do a few sermons on that very thing. I think it'd be good for us uh, just moving forward for our membership, for new families coming into the church, and just for, uh, for things that I think our church needs to be exhorted about, encouraged about, and admonished about, things we all need as members of a local church. And so I hope to do that, and I hope that that will be encouraging, edifying, and I hope that that will only strengthen the purity and the foundation of our church. So that's where we're going to go. But today... We are in a massive text that really takes us all the way from verse 18 of chapter 5 all the way down to verse 23. That is the section uh, before us because that entire section in Isaiah 5 surrounds the woe statements of Isaiah. You saw one of them there. Woe to those, or two of them, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. If you would, that is sort of encapsulating everything in this chapter. That is exactly what is going wrong with Israel at the moment. There is a complete and total distortion of reality and a complete and total inversion of morality. And so Isaiah has a lot to uh, talk about in terms of that. But what's interesting is that even as we consider just kind of a sneak peek into chapter 6, the woes of Isaiah do not end in chapter 5, but they become sort of the precursor of the ultimate woe of all in Isaiah 6, as the prophet himself says in verse 5, woe is me. The people don't really get a glimpse of the holiness of God until at last the prophet himself in the spirit is catapulted into the presence of God and there he sees God in all of his holiness and it's then and only then that Isaiah himself realizes just how holy the God of Israel is. Isn't that just remarkable? So he is drawn into the very experience of his own prophecy. But here we see what's going on. Israel is becoming reprobate. I mean, that is to put it lightly. Israel, about to go into exile, is losing all of its spiritual footing. And therefore, what we're looking at is what happens when Judah as a nation is turning its back on God. It's becoming hostile to God. And what happens is that the nation, therefore, experiences this spiritual slide, this spiritual uh, anemia, we could say, this emptiness, this confusion, this disgrace where the nation is full of wickedness and full of injustice. You see, maybe to us the language of injustice doesn't hit home as it should, and that's because you and I are not part of a theocracy today, right? We are not governed by God's law, not yet, not until he comes, right? But for them, injustice was part of the moral fabric of the whole society. How you treated the orphan, how you treated the widow, how you treated the needy. This all was a reflection of the soul of the nation. And that's why we have so many passages that deal exactly with that. How did this happen? How did Israel get there? That's what I want to focus on. 
Israel gets there in the following ways. Number one, you ready? Because the deeds of the Lord are forgotten. Turn with me to verse 12. Because you can outline, it's almost like uh, in, as, is, as Isaiah is kind of leashing out this, unleashing these judgments on the nation and describing their sin and the consequences of their sin, then he sort of gives the reason or the causal reason why it happens. And we encounter our first reason right here in verse 12. Ready? It says, their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. But, that's a big adversative interruption there. They do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. And so what is at foot here is that Israel, in its history, has lost sight of where they came from. So, in other words, they have forgotten God's great redemptive historical deeds throughout history, so they no longer see what He has done on their behalf. And of course, this is talking about God's redemptive work. So, primarily looking at things like the conquest, like Sinai, like the Exodus, all of those great redemptive events, like when he destroyed his enemies at the Tower of Babel, all of those great historical epochs that had taken place. Epoch, epic. I once got rebuked for calling epic, epoch. And then I heard a theologian did it, and I said, ha! I can say epoch if I want to. In other words, these great redemptive events were to be instructive to the nation. The nation was to look back and see God's judgment and His redemption through this judgment so that it doesn't lose sight of who it is. That's what happens. For us today, it's no different, brothers and sisters. If we lose sight of the historicity, listen now, not simply of the Tower of Babel, not simply of the flood of Noah, but if we lose our sight on the greatest redemptive epic of all time, which is Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, we lose sight of our place in God's story. And you know what I mean by story. God, uh, my wife hates the word story. I said, yeah, but that's what all the biblical theologians use. It's, you know, it's got a good ring to it. It's not a story, you know, like a, ch- like a children's story or something. It's history. I said, okay, point well taken. But you know what I mean when I say God's story. It is the redemptive tale that is un- unfolding before us in the pages of Scripture. And the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is its climactic point. And if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of what Paul calls in Galatians chapter 4, the fullness of the times. What Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 call the last days. What he says in chapter 9 verse 26, the consummation of the ages. In other words, we lose sight of what God has done in the past. We lose sight of who we're supposed to be in the present. And we lose sight of our accountability to the future. And that's exactly where Israel has, be, has uh, arrived. They had lost sight of the past. They forgot his redemptive work. They forgot his deeds. And therefore, guess what happens? When you stop looking at what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do, then you become inward. And so what happens? Instead of celebrating the redemptive work of God, they party without God. 
All of a sudden, they become narcissistic. They start becoming oriented toward themselves, enthralled with self. They rejoice in the work of their own hands. And that's where Israel's at. They were content with their own entertainment. They are just fine with their own songs, their own skill, their own abundance, and their own wine. Now, wine in the Bible it ultimately is a sign of messianic fullness. And so John chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. And my understanding is in the, in the recent news that just came out, they just discovered uh, the very location of his uh, the archaeologists are saying where he performed that miracle. Whoever pinned this on me uh, failed. <laughs> no condemnation, brother. There we go. Uh, <clears throat> but wine, even though it was a symbol of messianic fullness for Israel, became a symbol of their self-reliance, their self-focus, and their hedonistic ecstasies. And they became materialistic and greedy. You see this. Look at verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house, field to field, until there is no more room. Now, that sounds like Frisco, Texas, or Prosper, what's going on around here. It's like house to house, field to field. Is there any room left? Oh, yeah, just take a drive about an hour east of here. You can't run out of real estate in Texas. I forgot. It's so huge. I remember traveling from Southern California, driving to Texas. Worst thing I've ever done in my life. I've done it three times out of necessity, not because I enjoy it. But when you get to El Paso, then you got to go El Paso to Fort Worth. Man, that land just doesn't end. just goes on forever and ever and ever. But there's only one problem. Israel's not like that. Israel's like the, the, the size of New Jersey. I mean, it's tiny, right? And so when you have greedy, upper-class, upper wealthy elites monopolizing the whole land, taking away the land, so the, the, the honest person working hard and just trying to make ends meet, they can't even get a little plot of land. So all the wealthy people are gobbling up all the land and all the real estate and adding house to house for no reason other than that just they can like the Donald Trump of the ancient world, building one tower after another, you know. But what, what, what's going on here? Why are they doing this? It's because they've forgotten God. And as we're going to see here, brothers and sisters, all of these sins of Israel are actually an intensification. There's like an ascending intensification where what happens is Israel loses sight that God is creator, that God is their redeemer, that God is their sustainer, and that God is the consummator of his kingdom, that he will consummate his kingdom. And so what happens is that this leads the nation to doubt, to confusion, so that there is no eternal perspective, no eternal vision for their lives. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3. You want to see how relevant this is for us today. In fact, Israel will go so far as to mock God. They will sit in the seat of the scoffer, mocking that God is actually going to do anything anymore. As far as Israel is concerned, God is sort of detached, indifferent, uninterested, doesn't really care about their personal lives, what they do day to day. You ever fall into that rut? You ever fall into that state of mind? Well, Peter warned us about this long ago. Look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. First, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of His coming? It's almost like what Israel was doing in mocking the deeds of the past. 
our generation today is really mocking the deeds of the future of God. Following after their own lesson, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Literally, the world that then was. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of, the un, of ungodly men. In other words, in forgetting the past, the wicked mock the future, and this is what the people have become. They are sitting in the seat of scoffers. Just remarkable. But it gets worse. It's not just about forgetting something God did. Look at verse 13. Go back to Isaiah. The second detrimental thing that Israel does here, leading to their demise, is not only do they forget God's redemptive deeds of the past, but they discard the knowledge of God. See, because this is what's interesting, is the knowledge of God's deeds is readily at hand. It's within their midst. It's in their law. It's in the Torah. It's right there. They have it in their prophets and in their teachers. But they disregard it. Verse 13 says, My people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. The King James says, lack of vision. Sadly, many sermons have been built around the King James wording to mean something like, if you lack vision for your life, then, you know, you perish. <laughs> right? But that's not, Isaiah's not talking about ambition. He's, say, he's not saying you, don't, you need a life coach. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that they lack the knowledge of God, mainly in the Word of God. And says their honorable men are famished and their multitude is parched with thirst. So interesting, right? Keep your eye on the ball. What's going on there? Now, this is closely related, but Israel forgot what God had done for them. And in forgetting what God had done for them, they were no longer interested in the knowledge of God. That's detrimental for them. And what happens? What happens is when you disregard the knowledge of God, there results a haunting biblical illiteracy. Brothers and sisters, you and I today are living at a time, this is, this is fantastic in terms of just how outrageous it is, okay? We are living at a time, I would say right now, we have more biblical resources available to our hands. I mean, just today, I was getting ready for this sermon, and I was going over my passage in my text, and I, I hit something on Amos, because I'm going to quote Amos in a second here. I'm like, okay, there's a word here in Amos. I need to know the Hebrew right now. I need to know that. I need to parse it. I need to see exactly what it is. And guess what? I pulled out my little crystal ball in my uh, pocket called the cell phone, and I opened up the Logos app, and in less than three seconds, boom, I had the Hebrew, everything in front of me, bam, just like that. And yet, with this instantaneous access to innumerable biblical resources, isn't it amazing that we are staring in the face of a generation that is so biblically illiterate, sometimes it takes your breath away. Matter of fact, a professor recently at Biola University, he documented how in his own career as a, as a teaching prof there at Biola, over the last 20 years, he is just in awe seminary students coming in the seminary, how little of the Bible they know. There is, a, there is a famine in the land. And therefore, 
if biblical illiteracy is on the rise, people will no longer have a taste. They'll no longer have a sense for God and for the knowledge of God. It'll no longer appeal to them. Amazing. So turn there. Amos chapter 8, just so you can see this. This kind of ties in exactly to the metaphor that Isaiah is actually using in this text. Because what happens is this leads to national disgrace because the noblemen, the men of repute, the honorable men are famished in the land and the multitude is left thirsty. In other words, there's this, they're in a state of total spiritual starvation. Spiritual starvation. Look at uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, let's, before we behold what Isaiah says, behold the context. <laughs> okay, Because Isaiah is prophesying about a hundred years before Isaiah. Okay, And so I, excuse me, Amos is prophesying about a hundred years before Isaiah. It's like this is a part of the prophets that's so hard. It's like you got to keep your eye on the, you know, the centuries that you're in and what prophet, what king, what kingdom, what was the, you know. So he's prophesying during about 100 years prior to Isaiah during the reign of Uzziah and then Jeroboam. And what's going on during, during Amos' prophetic career is that the nation is in a state of total abundance. They are in a state of peace, ease, relaxation, total security. You know, the military is really strong. The economy is booming. Everybody has food and land. It's just great. Uh, supply and water and bread and everything that you need to live, okay? And so what, I, what Amos is saying is the nation is forgetting something. Even though everyone's driving around in their Tesla, what's being neglected is the knowledge of God, okay? I, I sat in a Tesla. Have you sat in a Tesla? Maybe you own one. I sat in a Tesla. I couldn't believe it. I was like, bam, bam, bam. I was like, I'll crash in five minutes. And just like, I just won't get off this, this screen thing. It's bigger than my, you know, it's just ridiculous. And I'm thinking like, well, it's easy to get enamored. i got to be honest, it felt good being in that Tesla. I can see why people would work two jobs to get one. <laughs> Amos, Amos is saying, I don't care if you drive a Tesla. I don't, have, I don't care if you have the latest and greatest this or that. He saw, he took a step back from the nation and he saw what they were preoccupied with, and he's saying, something is dreadfully wrong. Beneath the surface, something is, something is afoot. Something is dreadfully wrong. And you know what it is? People are losing sight of their spirituality in the midst of their material pursuits. It's that simple. And so he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger sea to sea, north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. It will get to the point where people will even see their need for divine revelation, but because they become so unfamiliar with it, where do they go? Who, who do they go to? Who will guide them in this point? Who will provide that revelation? It will be gone ultimately because Israel will be in exile. Their temple will be destroyed. Many of their documents, their parchments, their scrolls will be burned. And it won't be like you've got a bookstore right down the street. You can go get a copy of the ESV. You just can't, you can't do that in this time. And so Isaiah uses the metaphor of being famished. Isn't it amazing? Think of what he's done here. 
knowledge, that is the lack, right? The lack is knowledge in the abstract. And in order to illustrate that, he uses the metaphors of the body. You will be famished, you will be parched, and you will be thirsty. And so uh, Isaiah literally goes from the abstract to the concrete. He moves from the metaphors of the bodies to the realities of the soul. The application here is very simple, brothers and sisters. If you reverse the order, in other words, there is so much here for us to say if you fill yourself, reverse the order, if you fill yourself with the knowledge of God, then what you will have is sustenance. What you will have is fat for your soul, to use biblical language. You will feast on the fat of the land. You will be well nourished. You won't be malnourished. You'll be well nourished. You will be abundantly supplied. Your heart will be overflowing with living water. The abundant life that Jesus spoke about. But we know from history that in large part did not happen. And so God threatens to be avenged. Look at verse 16. That's the next thing. How did Israel get here? They forgot his redemptive deeds. They neglected the knowledge of God. And they lost sight of the fact that God is also an avenger. An avenger. Uh, It's getting worse, isn't it? It's like little by little they're cutting themselves off. Further and further. First they're forgetting, then they're disregarding, and then they sort of lose sight of who God is. Now it's directed towards what He is and what He can do. Look at verse 16. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. You cannot believe that if you lose sight of the knowledge of God. You cannot believe that God is, number one, He is the Lord of hosts, which means He is the God of armies. He has the power, the ability, and the authority to command His armies to execute His judgment. You cannot believe that if you lose sight of God's deeds. If you disregard the knowledge of God, then you lose sight of the judgment of God. And God is going to do this. He's going to judge both His enemies. He's going to judge His people. Turn with me to chapter 10 of the book of Isaiah. This becomes a repeated theme in the book of Isaiah. God judges both his people by using their enemies, and then God turns around and judges the enemies of God's people. Talk about being exalted, and that's why he said earlier in chapter 3, the Lord alone will be exalted above everybody else. Look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. You think the Assyrians are going to be used for judgment. Here, Isaiah says, Woe to Assyria, verse 5. They are the rod of my anger. Look at that. Isn't that amazing, guys? The staff in whose hands is my indignation. What's that saying? As Assyria descended from the north on the northern kingdom of Israel, they came with sword in hand, with shield. They came in battle array, and they started chopping people down in the streets. They were the very weapon of God to execute His judgment. Wow. What happens next? Assyria is not in any better condition. Look at verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all His work, 
Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. So now he's going to turn to the king of Assyria, ultimately lay waste to the nation. And Babylonians will make short work of them. Verse 24, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. Wow, isn't that remarkable? Even, even at the dispensation of God's wrath, God is saying, don't fear the rod that I use. Don't fear the staff, the sword. The army that I chose to use to bring about this devastation. Fear me. Fear God. Brothers and sisters, all this judgment language this is what I love about the Old Testament because it makes God's judgment palatable. You see it. But is it any less palatable today? Absolutely not. How did the New Testament, I've got a question for you guys. How did the New Testament authors view the Old Testament judgments? How did they see that, what God did back then? Well, thankfully, we have the New Testament so we can find out. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, another prophet is quoted, which is the prophet Haggai, prophesying about much the same thing. God's wrath, God's judgment. Now, much further along in redemptive history, during a time of restoration, Israel cannot lose sight of the judgment of God. Even upon their restoration, they are to be warned that the God who brings judgment in history is the God that will bring history to, the, to an end in judgment. That's how the author of Hebrews sees it. Look at verse 26. In Hebrews 12, verse 26. Two passages are really before us here. Exodus 19, what happened at the mountain in Sinai, and Haggai chapter 2. One is an illusion, the other one is a citation. Verse 26 says, His voice shook the earth then, but now He has promised. Listen to that, guys. You won't find this in your typical Bible promise book. He has promised, yet once more I will shake not the earth only. Wow. Does it get any worse than that? But also the heaven." Total cosmic disruption is coming. This expression, yet once more, look at the precision of the New Testament authors as they see in this prophetic event a horizon further than their own in terms of the prophets, further than the prophets. This, yet once more, becomes code because it denotes the removal of of those things that can be shaken as created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's a remarkable passage of Scripture. Because what he's saying is that in the yet once more, what that future eschatological event signifies is that there is coming a judgment so replete, so full of the wrath of God and of the power of God that all material things will be shaken and dislodged. What does Peter say? Even the elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth will be burned up along with all of the works of wickedness. Burned up. It's like I was reading this today, and I literally was sitting there drinking coffee, reading this, going, Lord, help my unbelief. 
Listen to what this is saying. Therefore, since we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and at this point we're supposed to say hallelujah, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Where is the sense of awe in the church today? Oh, the Mickey Mouse church today. I know my daughter just tuned in right now. I, I, even as it rolled off, anyway, I knew that Mickey's like she loves Mickey, but you guys get the point. Raw, the, the awe, the, the reverence. Uh, where is it today? Where is it gone? Slapstick Christianity. Seeker sensitive, you know, trampoline pastors. And what is going on in the church? What is the, what is the conclusion? It is exactly what Israel is forgetting. Exactly what we just saw. Don't fear the rod of my anger. Focus on me. Verse 29. Our God, and I want you to pay attention to the grammar, is a consuming fire. Not was. Not will be. He is a consuming fire. Present tense, active participial construction here. Anyway, but you get the point. That's exactly who he is. What is God now? Sure, in the past, Israel may conclude, maybe God's wrath came in the garden after the fall, in the Tower of Babel, during the flood at the Red Sea, against the prophets of Baal at Carmel. But really, today, where is wrath? Is there any wrath today? What is God right now? The author of Hebrews is dogmatic. He is a consuming fire. As far as Israel is concerned, God was there, but pretty much indifferent to what they were doing, especially their sins. But if Isaiah teaches us anything about God, it is that the holy, transcendent one of Israel is also near to every one of us, right? You guys know the verse. Isaiah 57, verse 15. It is when you contemplate the transcendence of God, the highly exalted nature of God, the loftiness of God, what we could call the altogether other nature of God, that God is not like us, He is beyond us. And yet, at the very contemplation of His transcendence, we must immediately come to contemplate His eminence, His closeness. The one who dwells on high is also with the lowly, the broken, contrite, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to, to, to revive the heart of the contrite. So in other words, the one who is altogether other, dwelling in highest heavens, the heaven of heavens, cannot contain him, simultaneously dwells among us, near to us. Matter of fact, Paul goes on to say in Acts chapter 17, we move and have our being in him. We cannot escape Him. I love this. Anytime we are contemplating the wrath of God and how God is going to exhaust His judgment, how God is going to satisfy His judgment, brothers and sisters, we are right there at the foot of the gospel. Because the transcendence of God, the nearness of God, listen to this now, this is both a comfort and a crisis. It is a comfort when we love God, when we walk with God, when we obey God. It is a crisis when we don't know God, we don't love God, we don't obey God. And so, 
E.J. Young, in his beautiful, wonderful, classic commentary on Isaiah, says this, When men see the righteous punishment of sin, they will acknowledge that God is truly holy, truly divine. In the day of judgment, all will confess that God is God. Some from a willing heart, some from compulsion. May our acknowledgement and confession of Him come from a heart that loves Him for the manifestation of His righteousness in the punishment of our sins in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. When grace is not applied, grace is abused. Turn with me to Isaiah 5, verse 20, to see the last dreadful mistake the nation makes here. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, sort of encapsulates it all. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's going on here? Well, this is what happens. You forget the deeds of God. You disregard the knowledge of God. You ignore the wrath of God. The only thing left is for you to abuse the grace of God until your conscience is gone. And that's where the nation is at. At some point, the nation will be reduced to a stump. That's what it says. Isaiah 3, 13. 3, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 6, verse 13. In other words, this is Isaiah's way of saying, faith will be scarce. It will be bleak. The outlook is dark. Matter of fact, he'll go on to end the chapter by talking about the fact that as you look out into the horizon, what you see is that the light is darkened by the clouds of judgment that are coming. That's how dark, that's how bleak it's going to get. But God will always have a remnant, always has had a remnant. And through these dark times in the nation's history, he he maintained a remnant during this time. But boy, was it hard. These circumstances have been brought on, brothers and sisters, by the nation's overwhelming stubbornness, their brazen invitation of sin into their souls. What does it say? Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. You know the New Testament has an equivalent of that. And I want you to turn there. James chapter 1. Because what Isaiah has given us here is a progression of sin. The progression of sin and how Israel went from singular cords, one small thread at a time, rooted mainly in falsehood, deceitfulness, that which misses the mark, that which is less than truthful, to now being hooked up to ropes that can pull a cart, probably weighing hundreds if not thousands of pounds. What does that mean? Well, you've gone from a small rope to a giant cord now that cannot be easily severed. In other words, this is the trappings of sin. And in James chapter 1, we have essentially the same progression of sin and what it's capable of in our lives. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. 
that's not our focus, but that's a, that's a, big, that's a big passage there. But listen, watch this. But each one is tempted when he is carried away, circle the word he, is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So there, epithumia doesn't necessarily need to be sexual lust or, or, or murderous lust. It could be any impulse to any sort of sin, right? But then watch the shift. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Watch this now. And when sin is accomplished, it, no longer he, see that there? No longer he, now it brings forth death. Why do I illustrate that? Because notice that the sin has almost replaced the sinner. No, no, no. This is not to deny the guilt of the sinning agent. That's not his point. His point here is to illustrate the radical nature of sin. It's almost as if what James is saying is that what we begin, sin will finish. It will run its own course, in other words. It will head and it will go in its own trajectory. It's like you've got the ball rolling and now the ball is rolling such that you can't stop it. And so, what is the outcome? Death every time. Just when Israel had thought that it had completely redefined its world by their God-rejecting and God-minimizing and God-ignoring ways, their world was going to come crashing down in a fiery ball of judgment. Isn't that the nature of sin? That is the irony of sin, brothers and sisters. Everything that sin promises is the very thing that sin takes away from us. The reversal of Israel's fortune is captured in verse 24, if you want to read that. Chapter 5, verse 24, Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so there the people's root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. In other words, after sin has run its course, the whole nation, in its pursuit of sin, rots from the inside out until at last from dust they came and to dust they will return. Isn't just just amazing? We're so desperately in need of this message today, brothers and sisters. Like Israel, if we become forgetful of God's glorious deeds, we neglect God's, God's glorious word and ignore God's glorious vengeance then we will abuse God's glorious grace. And hear me now. We will come to despise God's glorious presence. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. How did I preach over this so quickly? I don't know. This is the heart of it all. And Isaiah, throughout the book, he has ways of repeating this very thing over and over and over because God wants to illustrate to us that sin is personal. It is against Him. It's not just about what we do to each other, what we do to the nation, what we do to the society, the ramifications and the culture. Ultimately, sin is directed to, 
uh, strictly to Him. Verse 8, Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their speech, literally their tongue, and their actions are against the Lord, watch this now, to rebel against His glorious presence. Two things are happening there. Number one, it shows us that the sin is leveled directly at God in a personal rebellion. Number two, there's a double entendre here, if you would. There's a, there's a deeper meaning. There's a play on words because the glorious presence, what is the glorious presence? The glorious presence is the very thing that was to demarcate the people of God. It was to distinguish them. It was to set them apart. They were the ones that had the glorious presence in their midst. And instead of worshiping His glorious presence, instead of honoring His glorious presence, they despise and reject His glorious presence. Isn't it amazing? What is the progression of sin? The progression of sin, brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. The progression of sin is that you will come to hate God through your sin. Nothing less than that. If we sugarcoat it more than that, we don't say what God says about sin. It's like what God told David, why did you despise me as you went after your sin? And we've all felt the sting of this. We all know that we think we're pursuing that which will make us happy, but in the end, you know that you're actually despising God in the very act of doing what you're doing. What's the option? The option is this, brothers and sisters, what we learn if we reverse the sinful disorder and the sinful unraveling of the nation, what we learn if we just turn it around is that through humble contrition, through a teachable spirit, and through fearful obedience to God, we can come to praise the deeds of the Lord, to take advantage of the knowledge of God. Uh, and to, to, to really take advantage of the grace of God. That's what we talked about last time. Utilizing the means of grace and never losing sight of the day of the Lord, the day of reckoning. If the Apostle Paul teaches us anything in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, 11, verse 10, is that all this judgment language is absolutely 100% relevant for your life because Paul said, my entire ministry was done, executed, under the reality that one day God will judge me. Is that how you think of your life? You know, our society tells us that's absurd. Our society tells us that is so puritanical. That is so outmoded, outdated, old-fashioned. Give me a break. I'm supposed to live in light of a judgment that hasn't even come yet. You hear the folly? You hear the folly? This is the language of the serpent. Has God really said But what we read here is that God has not just said, He has promised it. And we will, to the degree that we do that, this is one of the reasons why I'm so so, uh, uh, intent on preaching of the church and the utilization of the means of grace and all of that, because as, as we look at the sins of Israel, what we conclude is to the degree that we do these things, in terms of taking advantage of the grace, taking advantage of the knowledge of God, reversing the order here, to the degree that we do that, we will keep ourselves in the love of God and we will flee from the woes of sin in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, 
Lord, perhaps the most important thing for us as the prophet Malachi said, is for us to walk humbly with our God. We don't humble ourselves. We will not receive from your hand. And so, Lord, help us not to ever develop this independent spirit, never to think of ourselves as self-sufficient, self-contained, autonomous, never to think of ourselves as ever reaching a standard, reaching a threshold, that we think we've reached a certain level in our spirituality and our piety. When that happens to us, Lord, will you humble us and will you break down our pride because we dare not be independent of you. We want to be dependent upon you. We want to rely on you for our very breath. We want to rely on you for every drop of grace that we'll ever have in this life so that back to you we can give you the glory and the honor and the praise that is due to your name for faithfully, sovereignly keeping us. And so we ask, O God, give us the strength to obey, to keep ourselves in the love of God, because we confess in it of ourselves we cannot. Like Paul says, if left to ourselves, we'd become like Sodom, we'd become like under Gomorrah, So we already have the reality of what we could do apart from your grace. And so we say, oh God, keep us in your grace. And let, do not let us go astray. In Jesus' name, amen.